Financial Residency is proud to bring you Grand Rounds with Dr. Tammy. Each week, Tammy Krause explores a new topic related to achieving financial independence by building and protecting your wealth. She invites guests who are experts in their fields who will share honest and valuable advice on a variety of topics. If you have an idea for a podcast, please email Tammy, that's T-A-M-M-Y, at financialresidency.com. Now grab your front row seat to this week's Grand Rounds. Hi, and welcome back to Grand Rounds with Dr. Tammy. This year has just been the year of the physician, and I have so enjoyed highlighting other physicians' careers, their journeys, and I really enjoyed focusing on those who have taken back medicine and made it something meaningful and enjoyable for them again. Today, I'm happy to welcome Dr. Tom Davis. He is a family medicine physician who has just overwhelmed the world with his telemedicine knowledge. He's helped others get into non-clinical careers, and he's just an inspiration. So welcome to the show, Dr. Davis. Well, thank you, Tammy. That's quite an introduction. You're turning my head. Can't wait to hear your journey and you know how you got to this point. So I guess let's start at the beginning. How did you get here? Well, I finished my residency way back in 1994, and I joined a three-person single specialty family medicine group in rural Missouri, a little place called New Haven. It's absolutely beautiful. You should go to it. And I did that because I really wanted to be a small town physician, and I also wanted to deliver babies. And so that was a position that checked both boxes. And my partner set me up in a satellite clinic. I was just a single doctor to begin with. And then we expanded to add a nurse practitioner. And and about the same time, we signed one of the very first total risk Medicare Advantage contracts ever offered in the US. Back then it was called Medicare Plus. Basically what it did is it put us 100% on the hook for the care costs of our patients, but remunerated us in proportion to the financial risk we were taking. And Tammy, that was a very foolish thing to do because we really didn't know what we were doing. Again, we were one of the very first people in the country to do it. But over time, we learned the lessons. And in 2012, we sold the health system that we ended up creating on the back of those contracts to a regional competitor for more money than you can shake a stick at. That whole journey from being a founder of that health system and being in leadership and helping other doctors succeed really uh, unleashed my inner personality trait of being a a helper and a teacher. As I was completing my personal service agreement with the folks that purchased us, I also started my own business consulting business on the side. And during that time, I was having some drinks in a hotel bar with some venture capital folks in Seattle, Washington. This was back in 2013, 2013. And they shared that they were going around to the different states and spreading some money around to try to broaden the telemedicine authority for the licensing in each individual state. And they talked about the folks that they were working with. And it seemed to me to be a huge opportunity because the folks that I worked with were all doctors who were absolutely burned down at the end of the rope. And I was very fortunate. I lived in, I worked in such an isolated place, value-based care especially a pure play like that was wonderful, Tammy. It was like dancing on air. It gave me full autonomy. I called the shots because I took the financial consequences of the shots that I called. And I really, it was wonderful. And then to go around the country and see all these people suffer, and I realized that I had to help my peeps in some way. And telemedicine, if it was structured the right way, seemed to be a great, a great bridge career 
to move from being burned out on the treadmill to whatever the next phase of your life is. So I made connections with these folks and some others. And as the big organizations came online, like Teladoc, I created and ran my own telemedicine practice as an independent contractor. And that gave me total control over my schedule. I could work where and when I wanted. I could work for whom I wanted because the design of most of these folks were on demand. And I discovered that once you strip away all the non-clinical responsibilities up to and including knocking on the exam room door, that increase in efficiency allowed me to earn the same amount of revenue as an average family medicine doc with half of the average family medicine's doc labor. And so I would be in a HIPAA compliant place on a beach in Florida or on a glacier up in Montana. I would perform my encounters for two, two and a half hours in the morning to two and a half hours in the evening and earn more than a comparable family physician in practice would do during their workday. And it was all because of the efficiencies and because of how everything seems to flow down on the provider's shoulders, especially the PCP shoulders. And again, this was starting about eight years ago, eight, nine years ago. So problems were profound, but they're nothing like they were are now. But I discovered that was a great path for these folks. And so in addition to my telemedicine, I started coaching other physicians into how to do this as well. And the demand was absolutely off the chart. It was very challenging to balance my consultancy with the telemedicine coaching because both were equally rewarding. And then along the way, I met a gentleman named John Jerka. He's a physician in Northern Illinois. He's kind of the father of the non-clinical career space. His podcast is incredibly popular. He knows everyone. He's such a gentle soul. And he really should be an adjunct faculty member at the University of Chicago. But as you well know, the system that sponsors our training programs and our professional organizations do not want more experienced clinicians in their ranks, simply because we might offer guidance to those coming behind us that would result in them jumping off the treadmill. And we can't have that because the system absolutely requires their labor. So we decided to create our own space for working with these folks. And that's why we created the New Script Community. It's an app that's available on both Android and on Apple. It's designed to be a space of complete privacy. You don't need to give your real a name or your real email address. We really don't care because we don't try to make money off of your presence on the community like other social media networks do. We're just here to serve our peeps, try to pay our good fortune forward. And we've been doing it now for three years, learned a lot of lessons. And the message that we want to send folks is there is a place where you can interact with people that are at similar stages of your journey, get information about what the next stage is, and then move through. And you can do that from peers who are not trying to make a buck off of you. We charge a membership fee that's very modest for the value that you get. And really the reason that we do that is to send everybody the message that, you know, if you don't pay for a product, then you're the product. And you go on all these quote unquote free social media platforms. Well, they're not free. Obviously, it's your data that they're after. Well, we don't care about that. But to send that message, we have to charge a nominal fee for membership. And John and I are absolutely not getting rich off of that. It's an intentional persuasion tool to let you know that we are the ones that are providing the service to you. You're not providing the service to us. And the whole point of the thing is to have a space where physicians go without having being sold to or recruited 
or advertise to or fear that their employer is looking over their shoulders and just explore. And we're closing in on a thousand members now. It's very exciting. We found out that people come on, they look, they may or may not take action, they go away, then they come back a few months later and look around again. And that's fine. It's really meant to be a supportive community to reach you at wherever you are in your journey. Because if you look around and think hard about it, the one voice that is completely absent from all our lives is the voice of the senior clinician. And when I was in training, that voice was there loud and clear, and they were there to provide a contra, a skepticism for what the generally acceptable approach was in healthcare delivery, especially for the organizations that we work for. But as those organizations have become more powerful and have consolidated and collude against our interests, they have no reason to allow that voice to be in the community at all. And that's why they're even absent from the professional communities, because our professional communities are now wholly owned by the industry, 100%. Anybody, you look at anybody in leadership in any one of these professional communities, you know where their money, they know where their money's coming from. So they really can't allow effective alternative voices there to help folks decide on a better path. And boy, when you look at the well-being of the workforce in healthcare today, better paths are definitely needed. I know NewScript sponsored a summit, an online summit back in April that brought on, I think, 12 different voices, coaches, physicians to try and talk to, you know, other physicians about non-clinical and non-traditional career paths. How well did that summit go? Did you have a great turnout for that? We had a very surprising turnout. These summits, they're kind of a, at least they used to be a dime a dozen. People used to hold these all the time but they're not very financially successful. So the solopreneurs that run them can't really afford to put them on on a frequent basis. They're usually used as loss leaders. And for us, we're already losing money. So you know we're doing this as much as a professional service than for anything else. So we decided to go ahead and enter the space and see what happens. And we've sold more than 300 seats, which if you have any knowledge of these things is a fantastic performance. But even more so, I was stunned by the quality of the information that was presented over the three days. And I know that sounds self-serving and that I'm, you know, I'm puffing myself up, but I've been a faculty member of these things now for years, and I will put ours up against the very best. And the good news is, since you know, we are using it as much as a professor for a professional service, as much as to generate some revenue, we don't have to depend on it for our livelihood. We're going to be doing it on a consistent basis. Oh, that's fantastic. We learned a lot of lessons that whenever you go into one of these things, Tammy, as you well know, if you go in thinking you know it all, you're going to get slapped upside the head pretty quick. And the one thing that was surprising to me, the thread that ran through this that I didn't realize, and I have vetted all these speakers and I've been working with them for now three years. I didn't realize this. The ones that are working in non-clinical roles but employed roles, so they're working as medical science liaison or utilization management uh, or as medical directors or for insurance companies, the ones working in those roles just accidentally all had partly the same message. And that is these organizations really look after your well-being. And that really astonished me. Anything from extra bereavement leave to governors on how many hours you can work so you don't overwork personal wellness coaches, real personal wellness coaches, and all kinds of extra benefits 
that, you know, we in the clinical world, we get a lot of lip flapping about, but we never really, never And really pizza. See. We get lots of pizza. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's really healthy for you. And again, I mean, that's kind of the nature of the beast. I mean, for those of you who don't really understand the economics of healthcare, once you get past a certain size, the health systems do not make money off of the delivery of healthcare for the most part. There are a few service lines, and maybe if the hospitals run well, the inpatient service line, that do generate positive revenue. But by and large, the super majority of services out there are lost leaders. And anybody who's been in private practice knows that to be true. In my private practice, we kept our overhead at 40% or less, and we still had trouble making money on our fee-for-service lines. Okay, These people are attributing overhead percentages of 80% or more to their primes. I mean, there's no way that they're making money. And the fact is, is that we are loss leaders. What we do is we provide them with the appearance of being a healthcare delivery system. But our employers, by and large, once they pass a certain size, are not in the business of delivering healthcare. They're in the deliver. They're in the business of building commercial real estate, accepting kickbacks and bribes from pharmaceutical manufacturers, DME, and those sorts of things. Getting government grants, although those are starting to dry up. And then owning all the ancillary services, the medical supply chain that feed into them. That is how they support the outrageous compensation rates of their leadership. Uh, we, on the front lines, we are essential because we provide them with the appearance of actually being a healthcare delivery system. But in actuality, we are costs to be controlled and to be managed. And I was very excited to be invited on here because it's important that every physician Every nurse practitioner, every PA understand that if they're employed in one of these systems, the system has no interest in helping them maximize the return on their own investment in their education. In fact, the interests of their employers is to squeeze down the costs and get every last bit of labor out of them in exchange for the lowest possible compensation. So all of the financial literacy tools that you share here, Timmy, are absolutely critical about taking on debt and how to manage retirement planning. But it all starts with earning a reasonable return on our investment in our education. And if you try to do that through an organization that sees you as a center of cost, that sees you as something to be suppressed, that doesn't respect your health and well-being, that instead of putting a governor on your hours feeds you pizza, well then you're going to have a hard time succeeding from the word go. The only path forward for you is to start looking outside that system and put your education, your credibility on an open market where you can compete for a reasonable price. Can't do that in the system because the health systems illegally collude to hold down our wages, not my opinion, Go ahead and search North Carolina versus Duke. Nobody admitted any kind of wrong wrongdoing, but just search radiologists, class action suit, Duke and the University of North Carolina. It's all there for you. You draw your own conclusions. These large houses, they collude to keep from hiring each other. So our wages don't match what the rarity and the value of our expertise is. And Tammy, the only way to do that is to get outside the system. But if you are working as a non-clinical person, in a organization where they desperately need your expertise to succeed in their business plan, they treat you like freaking gold yep. because that's what you're worth to them. 
And that was one of the most stunning things was that theme that ran through every person that was in that situation about how well their organizations took care of them. And they took care of them in a way that we as clinicians only could wish that our organizations would value us. Was that true across pharmaceuticals, insurance industry? I mean, was that true across all of those industries? That surprises me. Uh, you know what? That surprised me too. That's why I mentioned it. But every industry where the presenter had expertise in a role that was non-clinical, so they weren't seeing patients and were employed, said the same thing. And they came at it from different ways. But it got to the point where towards the end of the towards the end of the summit, I, I had to start drawing attention to it because they would say different things in different ways. But the extended bereavement leave with pay. I would be shocked if that ever happened in a regular health system. Having a personal wellness coach that you that that is engaged with you, that's you know a peer. I mean, there's physicians that work for pharmaceutical companies. That's all they do. They are wellness coaches for other physicians that have other roles in the company. I was stunned that that's their full time job. Putting governors on how many hours you can work. Can, that's some sort of bizarro fantasy land in clinical medicine. You might be able to find one an organization here or there that has one or two of those things. But honestly, the grant money that goes for wellness services in the healthcare system is spent just enough to justify the fact that the organization got the grant and then all the rest of those resources go somewhere else. And if you don't, if you think that's too cynical to take, then ask yourself the question, where is all the money going? Look at it. There's billions of dollars being dispersed on wellness programs for clinicians from the government, from healthcare organizations, from foundations that back these folks. And where is it? Do you see it? Do you see it around you? Well, these organizations can afford, can afford Cadillac level support for their uh, MD, PhD, and other credential employees. What about our healthcare systems? Well, if you think about the economics of the healthcare system, it all makes perfect sense. But the bottom line is that when you step outside the system in a non-clinical role, your value is recognized either financially as a freelancer or with adequate support as a, a non-clinical employer. I know you do a lot of coaching and I'm sure you help a lot of people who are going through burnout or have lost a lot of the medicine in their own careers. How do you start that process? Do you try and figure out what their interests are and then help guide them down the road that makes most sense for them? Do you try and show them this non-clinical pathway? How do you start with your coaching to be the most effective person that you can be? Well, that is a great question. And the answer is everybody's journey is unique. It's just like trying to find your own way into medicine as a career. The path everybody took was, and the motivations that led them there, was special just unto them. So what we try to do is we try to offer people a spectrum of opportunities and personality types for them to engage with that they're comfortable feeling engaged with. But it really all begins with letting them know, one, that they're correct, that something's really wrong, that they're, it's not that they're weak or that they, it's not them that's the problem. It's the situation and the environment that's the problem. And that is what a lion's share of our effort goes into, is letting them know that, you know, gaslighting is an overused term, but it's absolutely accurate that they're being gaslit and they're doomed. And that is an intentional tactic by the industry to hold them in place. So the first thing to do 
is to let them recognize that they are in a cage. They feel something's wrong, but they don't see the bars. So we got to help them see the bars. And then the next step is to give them a spectrum of opportunities that may or may not be of interest to them. Sometimes you do that with personality tests. Sometimes you do that with simply giving them resources. But you got to let them start visualizing the fact that not only are there indeed bars, but the lock has a key that they're holding and that they are the ones that can turn that key. In fact, they're the only ones that can turn that key. And if I have one universal piece of advice to anybody that is even in the pre-contemplative stage of doing this is to recognize that a tool that is used by the industry to keep you in place is to keep you busy. And remember, they don't make any money off of you. They're trying to decrease your costs, but they also try to keep you in place. So they give you things to do that make no sense. But it's one of the functions of that is to keep you busy so that you don't think. We all have a limited number of decisions we can make every day. They use that decision fatigue to keep you in place. And again, Tammy, this is not my opinion. These are tactics that are explicitly taught in the best business schools. Anybody that tells you that it's not is simply not being truthful. These are well-known persuasion tactics. Keeping professionals in place, people with special skills, not laborers, but people with special skills, that is a challenge the industry has faced for hundreds of years. And the science behind keeping them in place has grown along with it. And one of the tactics is to keep you busy. So if you're looking to move beyond where you are right now, you got to address the busyness, at least in the short term. So I advise everybody that reaches out to me before they pay me a nickel, says, you've got to bite the bullet and you got to get an Airbnb that specializes in being completely disconnected. No Wi-Fi, no television. We have a retreat center here by where I live but they're all over the country. Some people use a Trappist retreats. They had a system of retreats. Some place where there's nothing there. There's no communications. And you need at least four days, four full days, one day to spin down, two days to actually do the work, and one day to spin up. And then in the quiet and in the solitude, start writing. Start designing your ideal job. Start looking at the barriers that are preventing you from looking at that ideal job. Now, that recommendation usually falls on deaf ears because we're so used to being busy that the thought of not being busy, not being plugged in, is absolutely terrifying. And the ones that it doesn't terrify, they don't want to be away from their families because they spend so much time at work. But you know, the only person that can make a positive change in your life is yourself. And if you're on the treadmill as a clinician, you're being bombarded with an enormous number of intentional psychological persuasion tactics designed to keep you in place for as long as you can, as long as they can. And once your passion is gone and once you're done, they don't want you anymore. You'll be thrown out like an old pair of shoes. But until then, they want you working. You know, the industry feigns concern for you. But again, look around. What is the fruit of that real concern? Okay. And you see all of the problems that and the workforce is having, and they're getting worse despite all of this talking about doing it better. It's not going to get better. The people who could make it better have a financial interest in not making it better. Therefore, it won't get better. And if you think with that with that assertion that the people who have the power to make the change have a financial interest in not making the change, but they're still going to make it, 
I would suggest that you examine logic of that sequence to see if you can't spot a fallacy in there because it's not going to get better. It's completely up to you. And the first step is to get away from all the persuasion tactics they're throwing at you. Take four full days, unplug, one day to spin down, two days to do the work, one day to spin up, journal. Your homework assignment is to write down your ideal life. What is your ideal life? Without constraints, forget about how much debt you have, what your relationships are like, what support you have. What is your ideal life? You put all, invest a lot of money to get where you are, a lot of time, you lost your youth. What is your idea? What do you want? And then start writing the barriers that are preventing you. And if you have enough time, start writing the assets. And that, if nothing else, at least gets you thinking. Because we are all in the cage. We all have the key. It's completely up to you to turn it. But once you decide to turn it, there are so many resources out there, so many peeps out there ready to help you. It's not easy, but it is now. It is straightforward. And you know, for all of you who are suffering and are using substances or are hurting yourself, hurting your family, because you're being absolutely worked to death because you've been introduced into a system as an indentured servant with no way to discharge your debts other than a lifetime of labor. Well, I'm telling you that it is a cage, but you have the key. Turn it. Yeah, I've always kind of found it fascinating to think about the different generations of physicians. We had those who are, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s who have been physicians um, their entire lives. And they dedicated their entire focus of their being to being a physician at the expense of their families. And then I look at the other end of the spectrum and I'm looking at this new generation that's coming out now who are my kids age. I hate to say that, but you know, money isn't their primary focus. They have this desire for equality of life. And I'm hoping that maybe this new generation will help us change the focus or change the idea of what it has to mean to be a physician are there other things we can do in training to kind of help facilitate this, you know, taking back of our career, letting us have a life that's outside of medicine? Are there things that you think we can help each other with? Well, the first thing to recognize is that the training process is now completely captured by the industry. So I, I hate to use the term groom, but it's very appropriate. From the moment you walk into medical school, you're being groomed for the treadmill. And again, you don't have to believe me. Look around at how generously your training programs share information about financial literacy, for example, or alternative career paths. They will offer them, but you have to go hunting for them. They don't give you an option. Whereas in a world where everything is equal, they would be pushing those just as hard as they were pushing the employment option. Doesn't happen. Financial literacy, no way. And that's because they want you in debt and they want you working for the rest of your life. So the first less answer to your question is you cannot depend on your training, no matter how well-intentioned you think you are, no matter how nice and skilled and impressive your mentors are, your faculty members are, they are all constrained by the fact that the person paying the bills wants you, the trainee, on the treadmill. So they're not really going to help you. And if you find somebody who is actively advocating for alternatives, you will find that they won't last very long on your faculty. Again, not my opinion. I went around, I used to go around and try to sell curricula to residency programs for financial literacy, but also for career counseling. And I got absolutely zero traction. 
And again, I mean, sometimes you have to get a drink in somebody to get honesty. I went out for drinks with an assistant residency director of a residency of one of the most prominent residencies in the specialty in the country. And she told me, Tom, there is no way anybody's going to buy what you're selling. If we did, I, if I bought it, I would be out of a job because the people paying the bills do not want that information actively put in front of our residents because their goal in supporting the residency is to get them on their own staff and working for the rest of their life. I was That was very profound. And having asked, started asking that of other people I was trying to sell to and having that confirmed, that led me to change my point. So the first answer to your question is, it all comes from yourself. You got to do it. You've got to do it. And Again, increasingly, medical education at all levels is really pushing critical thinking out the window in favor of bowing to AI or standardized treatment plans and whatnot. You know, that's not medicine. I don't know what it is. It's not medicine. As a physician standing on the shoulders of Osler and all the great, and Apgar and all the great doctors that went before us, it's your obligation to develop your critical thinking skills and question, even if that gets you in trouble in your training. But you got to do the same thing with your own career. You have to stay frosty. And the earlier that you are in your career, where you, as you start answering questions, the better positions you're going to be to move forward. I will share one more piece of wisdom that you share here, and I want to really reinforce it, Tammy, is that I'm not saying that employment as a model doesn't have its benefits, doesn't serve certain needs. There are situations where you can use their needs against them. And the biggest one, is with loan repayment because they will repay your loans in a tax advantaged way. So once you get out of a residency, if you have loans, or even if you don't have residency, go ahead and take a job in a city that you'd always like to live in, but maybe not settle. And as you try to work your contract, see if there's any wiggle room in maximizing the amount of loan repayment you can get, even if it's detrimental to how much total pay that you're going to take home. Because that tax advantaged money is just absolutely like gold. So you come out there with a quarter million dollars in debt and you work for a couple of years, get most of that paid off. Then you can move to where you really want to put down roots. You don't have to worry about any non-competes and you're working with a much, much lower debt burden because debt is the equivalent of slavery. And that's one of the reasons why education is so expensive. It's a huge money spinner for the universities. It's an intentional tactic to keep you on the treadmill. That's why certain schools have advertised you know, tuition-free medical schools. That really hasn't caught on. And that's the reason the industry absolutely does not want you to have freedom of movement in your career after you get out. So the first thing is don't expect your school to do it. The second thing is start looking around yourself as early as possible. The third thing is if you are graduating with a lot of debt, use, use an employer Try to maximize that benefit as they would use you. Think of it as a, you know, think of it as an entry-level job or as an apprenticeship, whatever you want to do, but reduce that debt. And then the final thing is start surrounding yourself, both in person and virtually, with people and organizations that are taking alternative paths. Join the direct primary care organization and start looking at what kind of life you could lead in a cash pay system. Start looking at people like some of our coaches. They live outside the United States with entrepreneurial groups that travel from country to country every six months or every year, working outside the U.S., developing their online revenue streams and really enjoying their life. So that's another path. Surround yourselves with these people because 
once you get busy and once you're on the treadmill, it is so easy to simply accept the blinders that you get put on and just put one foot in front of the other. And before you know it, you wake up and you've spent your life, you've spent your passion, you've spent your mission, and you don't have anything else to offer. And then you get kicked to the side. And because labor is taxed at twice the amount, twice the level as capital gains, there's no way to get ahead. That's why the youngest generation is not interested in working hard because the system makes it not in their interest to do so. Why in the world would you go and labor as a high as a high income individual knowing that the first six months of the year, the first six months, you're going to have to give that money to somebody else, not your family, not your debt service, not your own needs. Your, your effective income tax rate could be higher than 50%. Now, that's a blessing because it means you make a lot of money, but you know what you can't make more of? And that's time. So you've spent six months of the year working for somebody else. Why in the world would you do that? It's no wonder young folks don't want to take that path because they intuitively see it and they know they can't get ahead. The better path, Tammy, is to create a capital asset of some sort either a business or a internet, an internet tribe, a panel of value-based care patients, create some sort of capital asset, put your labor into that, that labor doesn't get taxed until you sell that capital asset and you can sell it for half the rate of your labor. That's how the CEOs that you're working with get absolutely wealthy because they take most of their compensation in the form of capital gains. And even the ones that work for religious organizations that don't have the ability, or not-for-profits that don't have the ability to take their uh, finances or take their compensation in a form of stock prices, there are still many different options for them to generate value in the form of capital assets that may or may not be shady. I won't speculate on that, but that's how they get so wealthy. It's not by taking their labor and paying half of it back to the government. Again, taxes are wonderful. It's a privilege to pay taxes, but you are responsible for your own life. And so you can either work half the year for somebody else and then 30 years later wonder why you never got ahead. Or you can use some experience, build capital assets, real estate, a business, a panel of value-based care patients. And then when the time comes, sell that for a much lower tax rate. And then you become independently wealthy and you can come on podcasts and tell the truth without worrying about having to make a living the next day. Interesting perspective for sure. If there is anyone that would like to explore, you know, non-clinical or non-traditional careers, where would you suggest that they start? First of all, this podcast is absolutely essential because financial, it all begins with financial literacy. Debt is a slavery. Debt is an anchor that weighs you down. Pick your metaphor. You got to understand how to make your money because everybody in the world is trying to lend you money. So this is the first podcast you listen to. Then go to my business partner, John Jurica's non-clinical career podcast. He's got like 300 episodes. Pick your poison. It's in there. And then finally, you can come to our community, newscript.app. That's the kind of gateway to the community. John and I are not tech titans. Or we, don't own any, we don't own any big social media platforms. We're figuring it out as we go along, but our intentions are 100% good. And that is to provide a private place where folks can look and explore alternatives without having to worry about somebody pushing stuff to them or that somebody's looking over their shoulders. Newscript.app. 
Tom, thank you so much for coming on the show. I find you fascinating. I love your perspective. I really appreciated you coming on today. Tammy, it's a privilege. Keep up the good work. Well, thank you. And I hope you will all turn in again next week for Grand Rounds.